This is the Monday, November 30th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is The History Author Show. You can listen to us on our iHeartRadio channel, iTunes, Spreaker, the Tangent Bound Network, Player FM, or all sorts of other places. And we hope wherever you do listen, you take a moment and leave us a review. Today, we're heading back in time to meet a woman who lived at the forefront of American power for half a century, and yet she was always standing slightly behind her husband. She was born Claudia Alta Taylor in 1912, but the world knows her as Lady Bird Johnson. Newsweek called her a human dynamo, and now, thanks to newly released sources, we get a full picture of the former first lady like never before. Our tour guide into the past is historian and biographer of First Ladies, Betty Boyd Caroli, author of Lady Bird and Lyndon, The Hidden Story of a Marriage That Made a President. Visit BettyBoydCaroli.com to learn more about this book or her related titles like these, The Roosevelt Women, First Ladies, and Inside the White House. In Lady Bird and Lyndon, Betty Boyd Caroli writes that Mrs. Johnson was her husband's, quote, mood stabilizer a gracious people-pleaser, and an incredibly strong shield of steel. Considering how tiny she was, that might be hard for a lot of people to believe, but the book makes the case. The First Lady herself described her role as offering Lyndon good judgment, although he didn't always accept it. And she balked at suggestions that she was dominated, and she rejected pity for her husband's constant affairs that he flaunted in front of her. American women have been partners since the pioneer days, she explained it. It was not a question of one dominating the other. History's lens has always focused on the loud, brash man in the White House, a tragic figure for the tumultuous years of the 60s with assassinations, race riots, and protests against his escalation of the Vietnam War. Now it's time to move that camera just a bit to get a full picture of that five-foot-four woman standing behind her controversial husband, through it all. Let's learn more about this relationship with Betty Boyd Caroli, author of Lady Bird and Lyndon, the hidden story of a marriage that made a president. I'm joined now by Betty Boyd Caroli, author of the new book, Lady Bird and Lyndon, the hidden story of a marriage that made a president. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show today. Thank you for talking with me. I'd like to start with that subheadline right off the top. It says, a marriage that made a president. And of course, that's kind of a cliche about behind every man, there's a good woman and all the Ginger Roger things doing it backwards and heels. But as I read this book, I was 
impressed by the case that you made. This was really true about Lady Bird Johnson, who for me, not having lived through their presidency, I pretty much only knew Lady Bird as sort of this figure that was on the list of first ladies. And I remember seeing her sitting there at Reagan's funeral and being surprised that she was even still alive. She had a very long life. But I wanted to ask if, as you researched it, if you were as surprised by just how true that was about her, that she could have been president. She had so many skills. Well, yes, it's true. There is that uh, cliche that behind every man there's a woman or the power behind the throne or something like that. In Lady Bird's case, I see that much more as a team. You know, the idea that she's working with somebody, that she considers herself part of the presidency, because it would be wrong to think that she manipulated Lyndon Johnson. I think nobody manipulated him. But she certainly knew how. She had skills that he didn't have. She had a much more centered personality. She got along with people better than he did. And he really needed somebody like that to get where he got. I like the cover. I started flipping back to it when you would get to some of those key points that you're describing about how their relationship was and how she saw it as guiding him and helping him. And the cover features a photograph, of course, a black and white shot of the Johnsons from behind. And the thing I kept looking at when I would go back was her hand, because you look at it, it's her left hand with her wedding ring appropriately on his back, sort of the small as back halfway up. And when I would flip back, as you're telling the stories in Lady Bird and Lyndon, sometimes she seems to be pushing him, other times supporting him, protecting him, comforting him, because she does all of those things. And I wanted to ask what you see when you look at that picture. And did you have any input to choosing it? Well, I agree with you. It's a great picture, and I have to admit, I didn't have any input. I never saw it until it was presented to me as a jacket for my book, and when I saw that, I said, the person who chose this photo really understands what my book is, because for me, and as you note there, we see them only from behind, and we don't even see his entire head. Just He was nearly a foot taller than she, so we see just part of his head, and she's in fuller focus, but that hand, it's not really pushing, it's kind of supporting, it's kind, and it is so strong. I mean, it's the hand that is the center of that photo, and I think that describes very well how she aided him to do what he did, to have the career that he had. The nickname Lady Bird, I think part of the reason she's easy to overlook is because of all that invokes sort of this skittish little frail lady sitting in the corner, maybe afraid to drink anything stronger than weak tea. And those are characteristics as I'm reading your book. I'm learning that she didn't have at all quite the opposite. And then I came to see it, I guess, about halfway through as really the perfect name, not because of what it represented, but what it concealed. She was very friendly, you learn in the book. You learn how everyone likes her. She tells Lyndon Johnson very early in their courtship via letters she could sell him to his worst enemy if he ever had one. She really was this complete opposite of that name, Lady Bird, don't you think? In some ways, not that she wasn't a lady. No. <laughs> the bird part. There was the class difference between Lyndon and Lady Bird, and he liked to tease her about it, that she had more money, that she had better college degrees, that she could write better than he could. He liked to tease her about that. So there was that, that class difference that maybe you see when you hear the name Lady Bird. You know, she hated the name. Huh. And in the first years, nobody called her Lady Bird. It was Bird. You'll see in the book, or you have seen in the book, that when he wrote her when they were courting and he was in Washington and she was in Texas for about eight weeks, he was writing her several times a week, begging her to marry him immediately. It's always Dear Bird, and the envelope is Bird 
Taylor, Karnak, Texas, and it got there. So the ladybird really becomes her, her name, her nickname, because her real name, as you know, was Claudia. It becomes her nickname in about 1939 when they're in, in Washington, and, and Lyndon is very intrigued by the idea that Franklin Roosevelt is known by his initials, FDR. And it's about that time that Lyndon starts being LBJ, and of course having a wife with the same initials, LBJ, just fit perfectly. So she did go along with it, even though she was teased, she would say that when she was traveling in Europe and would be introduced, this was before she became, they moved into the White House when she was lesser known, but in the vice presidential years, traveling outside the country, she would be introduced and the person would say, lady who, you know, and they would make fun of it. And she said if she had known where she would end up, she would have changed both her name and her nickname. But it's true that it fits her okay, I mean, now, although it's difficult to write about First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson. I ran into that trouble in the book. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. I thought that even just writing the script. Mm -hmm. I also took note that she was named after an uncle, wasn't it? That was uh, Claude, a man. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was also appropriate for her because she's certainly not taking a role that you might think of some of the First Ladies you've written about in your other book. We had Abigail Adams just saying, I'm going to stay in Boston the whole time. I have no desire to be down there and those sort of first ladies that just didn't want any part of quote unquote a man's world. She really could have been this force on her own, whoever she had met, and partially because she had this tough exterior. And I wouldn't have imagined that going into the book, but I read it and you compare their two personalities. And I wanted to ask you to comment on this quote. You write, quote, He was a man who stopped to help hurt dogs and welled up at sad movies, while Bird could walk right past injured animals and rarely shed a tear over anything. Yes, that may surprise some people that Lyndon Johnson was a very emotional man, and he would break into tears in a movie. She was embarrassed. I think it was Grapes of Wrath they were watching, and he starts crying at the plight of the people moving west, you know. And she she just thinks that, I mean, she just doesn't cry. She's a very tough person. And her business sense that goes along with that, you know, she was orphaned, really. I mean, her mother died when she was five, and her father was a businessman who didn't have much time for family things, but he did have time to teach her business. And she could read a balance sheet, people said, like a truck driver reads a map. She was very good at business. In fact, when she graduated from high school at 15, her classmates predicted that she would become a famous businesswoman, that she would make a fortune. So I think they saw in her not just her business skills, but also her ambition. And of course, the point of my book is that she put that ambition and that business sense to work in the career of Lyndon Johnson. There's so many times like that in Lady Bird and Lyndon, you say, wow, this is some lady. You don't know you don't know whether to just be affectionate towards her or whether to be a little bit frightened by how driven. I, I think sometimes you read about her and I just sat up a little bit straighter because you feel like that person's watching you. She was <laughs> so intense about a lot of things. You wrote one item about she goes into the hospital for a completely unrelated surgery and she says as long as she's there she might as well have her appendix removed I know. that's an incredible efficiency most people i have to go to the dentist in a couple of weeks and i'm just kind of cowering so i i can't imagine saying hey is there anything else you can take while you're in there you must have had a lot of those moments i would there, think there were many moments and for example toughness about her own schedule i mean you read what she did in the White House, she would have these meetings. She would start with Lyndon in the morning about you know, making sure that she talked to him about what was going on. And then maybe appointments with three different secretaries, one in charge of her press, 
one in charge of the social things at the White House, one her personal secretary, and then for lunch, and here she was, she could have had lunch with anybody and the most elegant lunch imaginable, but she would have a hamburger in her room alone. I mean, she's such a hard worker. I liked her a lot, but I had to say she she needed to loosen up a bit and have some more fun, and I think her daughters <laughs> said the same thing to her. For example, talking about when she was tough with herself, when she was in the White House, people said, you know, you could save time if you had somebody come to the White House to do your hair. But that cost more than going to the salon. And so she would pack a little lunch and put some work in a bag and go to the salon and have her hair done and come back. I mean, she did have her hair done a few times at the White House, but she was out for saving every penny. Something, too, especially when you talk about the class differences and the way that she was raised and her mother passing away, that she still watched her money. And that was one of the items you mentioned in the book about Lyndon Johnson's first campaign, because it's one of these things repeated about historical figures that he married her for her money. And that's it. And that's the whole attraction, sort of. And that explains a lot of the infidelity and stuff for people, they figure. But you wrote a great passage here describing how he asks her for money for his first campaign. And before she gives him a dime, she goes and sort of kicks the tires in the investment (laughs) and says, does he have a chance? So that's not a woman who's afraid if she doesn't give the money or that she's going to not have a husband anymore or that that's the agreement. She's ready to hold the money back until she hears if he can actually win. Absolutely. She went to the campaign man, or to their advisor, really, this man who was very important in in advising them. She called him our brain trust. And she said, first, does he have a chance? And second, how much will it cost? And he said, yes, he has a chance. It was a crowded field. I think there were seven running. You know, it was an election for a congressman who had died. So it was just one election. It was all going to be over in a few weeks, and they had to work fast. But she took time to check it out, and the price was $10,000. So she called her father to see if he would advance some of the money that she was due from her inheritance from her mother. And he said, well, couldn't you do on five? You know, he was a bargainer too. (laughs) And she said, no, it has to be 10. So the money was transferred to the bank, I think, within a day or so. But no, she did the same thing when she was ready to buy a radio station. The station in Austin was not doing that well, and she had a chance to buy it for, I think, 17500 And before she put down a cent, she went to a friend who was on the FCC and said, what do you think? And he said, I think it would be a good investment. So she was somebody who studied every situation. That's why I was so surprised when I had written about her earlier that she married Lyndon so quickly. You know, she met him on September 5 was separated for him for most of the time because, as we said, he was in Washington working as a congressman's assistant, secretary, they called it then, and they got married. He came back to Texas on Halloween, I guess just about the end of October, and they were married on November 17. So figure altogether it's 10 weeks, and they were together maybe two. And they also corresponded so much via letters. And I'd made a note initially when I wrote that down to remind people that are younger listeners, that's real written letters. 1934, there's no email, long distance phone call. Speaking of her business sense, she chides him, doesn't she, for making long distance call when it's so expensive. But (laughs) it's that kind of thing. Even then, you see that she's the frugal one and he's the big spender. When he put an extra dime on the letter to make it special delivery, she said, now you just save that dime. They get here just the same. (laughs) 
you know, a day yeah. or two later. And then he located her when she was up in Dallas for a football game. He found her with a person-to-person call, and she said, how could you do that? You know, So, yes, they had their money differences even during their courtship years. But those letters, you know, they're online. You can go on and read every one of them in sequence. In other words, there were a few that had trickled out over the years, or historians had found them in some exhibit that was up or something, and they had quoted them. But now we can go on. There are about 80 of them written over that fall of 1934, and you can trace the relationship and come to some conclusions about what he saw in her and what she saw in him. I thought the letters were a gold mine. I was so happy to find them. And you're right that historians writing about the Clintons or the Obamas, they're not going to have letters like that. It's all email. And by the way, the letters were released just on Valentine's Day 2013. So you're revealing a side of them here from source material that wasn't available before. Yes, just a few of the letters. The one letter where she says, I hope you're not going into politics. I've seen that in exhibits and the people have quoted it. But the whole set of them was released Valentine's Day, as you say, in 2013, just when I was working on this book. And the one way she did lighten up, there's a story that you have in Lady Bird and Linden about her first New Year's Eve in Washington, D.C. She's drinking Tom Collins's, which I thought was, I don't know, appropriate for. I guess it's sort of a sweet Southern type drink, maybe. But describe her experience that night and what it says about her, because she doesn't do what I think many of us have done and have their first night drink very heavily and then just go right back to it or keep making this promise. She has experiences like that, it seems, throughout her life and immediately intellectually processes it and moves on. Yes, I have great sympathy for her. She'd driven, they had driven up. Remember, she was, they were married on November 17th. They went on a short honeymoon to Mexico, came back, spent some time with his mother and her father, and then drove up to Washington, getting there just in time for New Year's Eve to welcome in 1935. And here she was. She had been in Washington only a short time before on a kind of post-graduation trip. She really didn't know the city. He'd been living there for a couple years, knew lots of reporters. And so they get invited to this New Year's Eve party where it's a lot of journalists who are big drinkers. And she overdoes it, but she learns from it, never repeats that. She was a very moderate person in terms of appetite. And when the Japanese eventually attack Pearl Harbor, Lady Bird is the one that ends up running his congressional office. And this period really says something also about their relationship. She performs the job so well, the man heading the Texas office, Jack Pickle, suggests we could get some press out of this. But Lyndon Johnson's reaction to her success is maybe not what you would think. Yes, it's true. When the announcement came that Sunday morning of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Lady Bird Johnson was not in Washington with her husband. She was down in Alabama going over some financial papers because her uncle, the uncle for whom she was named, had just died, and she knew she was going to inherit quite a lot of money and quite a few acres of land. And she didn't wait for people to tell how much it would be. She went down there and was checking it out herself. By the time she got back to Washington, Lyndon had already enlisted for active duty. He was a congressman from the 10th District of Texas, but he and other congressmen, he wasn't the only one, enlisted for active duty. 
But he neglected to say who would run his office while he was away. And she took over. She ran it. There's a wonderful file of letters, copies of the letters that she had the office send out because there were three or four secretaries employed to write these letters. And she would go over them and correct the spelling. And the one I liked the best was the one this secretary had written that your congressman, Lyndon Johnson, is off where his president wants him to be fighting this war or something like that. And she crossed it out. The letter said fighting this war where his president wants him to be. And she crossed it out and said, that's not true. His president wants him home and made the secretary reword it. And in fact, a few months later, the president called all the congressmen home and most of them came. A few did not, a couple did not, but Lyndon did come home after a very few months. People said she did the job so well running that office that some of his constituents didn't even know he was away. And it's true, Jake Pickle, one of the men who was running the Texas office, said, I think we should get out a good article about her, you know. But Lyndon never went along with that sort of thing. He was good at pushing her to do things. But when she picked up a little praise, he always got a little jealous that if the praise wasn't aimed at him. Yeah, he sort of just squashes any idea that she's going to be the star, it seems, throughout. And she's fine with that. As you said, it's a partnership, really, where she has a role she feels to play and to compliment him and for them to work together. She does it throughout, not just the war years, but throughout your book. My guest is Betty Boyd Caroli, and her book is Lady Bird and Lyndon, The Hidden Story of a Marriage That Made a President. You can visit BettyBoydCaroli.com to learn more about this or her other works on the spouses of our presidents. One of those books is First Ladies, Martha Washington to Michelle Obama. And I read in your current book here, Lady Bird and Lyndon, so much about this first lady that I found myself thinking of the relationships with the previous first ladies and their husbands. One of them was Louisa Catherine Adams, John Quincy Adams' wife, who, unlike Abigail, her husband kept very much out of his business. And one of the comparisons you make is to Dolly Madison and how much she helped James Madison with his sort of social awkwardness, how she was beloved by all. We discussed her previously with David O. Stewart, author of Madison's Gift. So I wanted to ask if you, as a presidential historian of First Ladies, found yourself comparing her at different points of her life a little bit to some of these other first ladies. And what do you think new first ladies can learn from her and how she played the role? Well, yes, to answer the last part first, the new first ladies, I think, can look to Lady Bird for a model of what a good first lady should be. I did find myself comparing Lady Bird to these others. Now, the comparison with John Quincy Adams' wife, uh, Louisa Catherine Adams, is an interesting one because at first glance, it would seem they have nothing in common. Louisa was born, she's our only foreign-born first lady, born in London, and had a lot of trouble really adjusting to the United States, and particularly to that very strong Adams family and her mother-in-law. How would you like to have Abigail Adams for a mother-in-law? But there was a, a similarity when I thought about it. Louisa Adams pointed out that she knew that everybody watched her face to see what her husband was thinking. And I thought every first lady, including Lady Bird, they knew well, Lady Bird was a master at picking out who could be the enemy of Lyndon Johnson and then putting on the very best face and being the very most gracious person. So that idea that a president's wife 
will reflect her husband's attitudes and she needs to be aware of that because people will try to read her. That comes right down from Louisa Adams. So she was in the White House 1825 to 29, so that's like 140 years or so before Lady Bird, and the problem is still the same. Dolly Madison, I think the comparison with Lady Bird is a good one there too, because in both cases, they were the humanizing side of the husband. You know, they were the gracious, the social person who could win over friends. Of course, James Madison was a much more reserved person than Lyndon Johnson. So in that way, they're quite different. I always feel that Dolly Madison, who was a big buxom woman and much younger, of course, than James Madison, who was this great legal mind, but not a great social figure. Lyndon Johnson, of course, it was just the opposite in terms of physical size. Here you had this towering Lyndon at six feet three and Lady Bird at five feet four. But in some ways, Dolly and Lady Bird performed the same social roles. And you find that a lot with President. You look at Calvin Coolidge and Grace. I mean, she was a real winner. Everybody liked Grace Coolidge. And you know the famous joke about Calvin, that somebody sat down beside him at dinner and said, I made a bet I could get you to say more than two words. And he said, you lost. You know. <laughs> so there was that, that ability of those wives to make their husbands seem more humane, more personable, and the relationship with her predecessor, who obviously is Jackie Kennedy Onassis, their dynamic, I guess you'd say, in the White House, it's sort of similar there to Dolly Madison in the way that Dolly worked for Thomas Jefferson as a hostess because, of course, he was a widower. And that seemed a little bit like it. But it doesn't seem like Jackie Kennedy understood her really either, despite having this front row seat. She compares Lady Bird's attentiveness to LBJ to a servile hunting dog at one point. So what was their relationship like? Well, the relationship between Jackie Kennedy and Lady Bird is a complicated one. Lady Bird often said that she felt the Kennedys were a different generation, more her daughter's generation. And that's really not exactly true. Jackie is, what, 17 years younger than Lady Bird, so it's almost a generation. And I think it was a very difficult act to follow coming into the White House after Jackie, who was such a fashion icon, so much known for her support of the arts and her restoration of the White House. But Lady Bird Johnson always felt that she had something to offer to, I think, my line in the book. She recognized that in some quarters, a workhorse meant more than a show horse. In other words, she would do things that really mattered, Lady Bird would, like Head Start, environmental programs. Later, after Lyndon Johnson died, Lady Bird Johnson and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis by then saw more of each other than they had before because Lady Bird rented a house on Martha's Vineyard for a month or so in several summers in the 1980s. And they got together for lunch or at a birthday party or whatever. And there's a nice folder of letters in the LBJ library of correspondence between them. And when Jackie died in 1994, Lady Bird was already having trouble traveling much. She'd really cut back and didn't really go much, walked with a cane, but she made it a point to make a trip from Texas to New York to attend the funeral of Jackie Kennedy, Onassis. And you mentioned about her looking at her as part of her daughter's generation. And it made me think of another thing that you wrote in Lady Bird and Lyndon. You write, quote, it's not that Bird didn't love her daughters. She simply put other responsibilities ahead of them. And that was 
a tough relationship there, distant, I guess, maybe, because she herself didn't have a mother. So describe those family relationships and her other relationships in her life a little bit. Well, Lady Bird herself said that she didn't do as much for her daughters as they would have liked. And I have some scenes in the book where they told her how much they wanted more time from her. But she always says, I don't have any guilt complex about this, leading me to believe that she wouldn't have done it differently if she'd had another chance. She said, Lyndon always comes first, and then the girls, and then me. The girls would say, Lyndon comes first, and then her business empire, her broadcasting, and then them. But anyway, that's another story. After he died, I have to say, she did begin spending a great deal more time with her daughters and with her granddaughters, and you get the sense that a very warm relationship did develop. But in defense of her, I can say two things. One is she never knew what a mother was, really, because her mother died when she was so young, and she was passed around to relatives, and just really, well, I say she raised herself. The other thing I would say in her defense is that Washington couples in that time, very unlike today, and I was reminded of uh, Paul Ryan's comment about how if he became Speaker of the House, which he now is, that he intended to continue to spend a great deal of time with his family. I was told by many people that Washington in the 1940s and 50s, which is when the Johnson daughters grew up, power couples did not devote much time to their children, many of them. They considered them backdrop. Uh, One woman told me we were just supposed to stand in the right line for our pictures and keep quiet, not cause any trouble. So it was the way maybe Washington operated more in that time than in our own time. As for Lady Bird's other family relationships, she did have two older brothers, but they were a lot older, and they were sent away to boarding school when she was young. So she always felt she didn't even know them. She said about one brother, you know, it's like we don't have him. And when he died in 1959 of pancreatic cancer, she said it was the first time that she'd ever really cried. She realized she'd never gotten to know him. So her family relationships all took second place to Lyndon while he was alive. You mentioned something in the book also about them trying to set up a photo opportunity for the Johnsons, and you describe it as being really awkward, and it just wasn't something that they did easily sitting together because they never did really sit down to dinner and have a meal and talk about school and I guess what we would picture maybe from watching a lot of those 60s sitcoms and just assuming that there was sort of a father knows best thing going on in the White House. That wasn't what the center of their life was. It really wasn't the kitchen table. It was more like his desk there in the House or Senate. And it was a piece of advice that First Lady Johnson gave to her daughter, Linda. She told her, learn to walk behind him while saying thank you when she married Chuck Robb, who's an aspiring politician himself, of course. So I wanted to ask you to interpret that for listeners because it may not be exactly what it seems at the first reading. Well, I think it sums up, obviously, she, Lady Bird did much more than walk behind Linda and say thank you. But the public view was that that's what she did. And she was always softening his stance and making him more approachable. But behind the scene, I think it's very clear from this book that the research I found, her unpublished diary talks about how she was giving him advice on this. She was encouraging him to go to the Democratic Convention in 1964 when he was refusing to go. She was watching his mood swings. You know, in the spring of 1965, when so much of that legislation was about to be passed, Medicare, the Immigration Act, highway beautification, all that legislation of the 1965, which was just an outpouring, really, from the president's desk, she was noticing that he was having very big mood swings. 
And Bill Moyers noted it too and went to her and said, what can we do about this? And Richard Goodwin noticed, several people noticed it and observed it. But in her diary, you can see that she's reporting today is a good day and, and now he's in a deep depression today and I don't know what caused it. And then a few days later, well, he's sunny and on top of the world today. I don't know what sprung him, that phrase, what sprung him sort of uh, amused me. So we know that she was doing much more than walking behind him and saying thank you. But that's the public view. You write in the book about people evaluating him and saying that today we would call him a manic depressive or a bipolar personality. He was so up and down. And again, reading Lady Bird and Lyndon made me see him in a whole different light. I never would have pictured him as somebody laying in bed, not wanting to get out. But he takes to bed so many times in his life. And she's this healthy, robust woman, as we mentioned before. She was the one who would have to go and pull him out of these funks as best she could. And that made me want to ask, again, keeping the camera on her, what do you think would have become of Lyndon Johnson if you could speculate without Lady Bird? How high do you think he would have risen? Well, I don't think Lyndon Johnson would have risen very high politically without somebody like her to mend the fences and also to network for him. You go way back to the 1930s when he's just getting started in Washington, and she is a real networker. She talks about wanting to meet fascinating people of the New Deal, and they get together for these suppers at one house or another, and she's entertaining. She was always entertaining the most important people at her house, you know, cooking for them, even before she knew how to cook. And she didn't cook for very long. She got to cook uh, fairly soon. But uh, she was definitely paving the way for his career. How would he have ended up? Maybe he would have kept teaching debate in the high school in Houston where he started out. He always said he wanted to go back into some sort of business, like the insurance business or something. But I don't think he would have been too good at selling insurance. His people skills weren't always the best. <laughs> he often threatened to quit. You mentioned many times in the book he wants to just toss it in. And at one point... Lady Bird's afraid he may leave her for a younger woman because he wanted a son. And of course, she only had two daughters. That was seems to be probably part of that mental state that he was in where you just are up one day and you feel like you're on top of the world as president. And then the next day you say, I wish that I could just go fishing and not cut my hair as he does at the end of his life and just sort of hang out there. And that brings us to, I guess, the affair questions you probably get a lot. And I left that till later because you can get that by reading the book, and I think we've heard so much about it already that this is a new portrait, really, of Lady Bird as a human being in her own right, as a personality and a force in Washington in her own right, and not just sort of seen through the lens of her husband standing behind him saying thank you, of course, because he does show her – some tenderness throughout their relationship together that sustains her. One is a moving moment in the book. Again, the daughter is getting married at the White House, and they ask who gives this woman to be married, and LBJ says her mother and I. And that's a moment she sort of gets those little moments of sunshine, does Lady Bird. Another is something that, as a first lady historian, you appreciate, of course, is her holding the Bible at his inauguration in 1965. And that's a precedent I never thought where it came from, but it came from her, didn't it? So they had a relationship that was maybe impossible for us to believe, but it transcended all of those things. And she would just look away from it. She was that, I guess, maybe stoic a personality, wasn't she? 
Well, there were many instances in which uh, people told me that they observed Lyndon Johnson being extremely uh, proud and in love with Lady Bird. I remember one man said that he was in a meeting, a very important meeting with the president, and Lady Bird came in in a new dress she had just purchased, and she kind of pulled around, and this person telling me the story said it was like Lyndon looked at her like uh, some high school kid admiring his girlfriend. So there were many marks of tenderness and Lady Bird writes one time in her unpublished diary, I think it is, that uh, Lyndon had really uh, criticized her in a very harsh way for some decisions she had made about how her office was run, and she was very mad at him. She used the word mad. I was mad at Lyndon for what he said to me. But then later she said, he was so sweet and kind, I just couldn't be mad at him any longer. You mentioned before about Lady Bird on her tours there when she's not yet the First Lady. And she said, of course, those were the most enjoyable years of her life, which is another surprising thing. You would think that anybody else would probably want to be the top dog, so to speak. But she enjoyed that. And she just really wanted to be able to travel and enjoy herself. And as you said, meet these great people, whether it was people behind the New Deal or uh, Charles de Gaulle or whoever it was that was out there making headlines and were powerful people. After her husband dies, Lady Bird has 34 years, which seems like a very long life. It's a third of her life. It's a lifetime in and of itself. And she starts these beautification projects like the National Wildlife Research Center in Austin. So I wanted to wrap up by saying at Lady Bird's funeral, you write, Lyndon Johnson's name is barely mentioned. And so keeping with the spirit of focusing the camera on her in this interview, I wanted to ask you what you think her enduring legacy is, this girl born Claudia Taylor who rose all the way to the White House. Well, I think uh, her enduring legacy will be that she really established the modern first ladyship as we know it. And her environmental work. I mean, I've certainly had the experience of being in Washington and driving around when the flowers are all in bloom and the taxi driver will say, Lady Bird Johnson did that. Her, her environmental work in Texas, I was just in Texas, and you know, Lady Bird Lake, she's an icon there. But I hope, too, that her legacy will be that she showed that a very real partnership in the White House can be a very valuable thing. You know, spouses can do a great deal to shape a career of the partner. And I don't know that we've really looked at that so much in our president. In this case, in the Johnson case, I think it would have been a very different career for Lyndon Johnson and a very different presidency without Lady Bird. So I hope that will be her legacy, that she shows it's a more complicated situation than any of us thought. Betty Boyd Caroli, thank you so much for joining me today. This was really a great discussion and a book I probably wouldn't have picked up had it not been put into my hand. So I'm glad <laughs> that that happened. Lady Bird and Lyndon, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and I hope people will pick up the book and get a look at a figure that easily forgotten these days. Right. It's available in audiobook and ebook and hardback. Again, the book is Lady Bird and Lyndon, the hidden story of a marriage that made a president. Lyndon Johnson once yelled to his wife, Bird, where are you? To which she replied, Right behind you, dear, where I've always been. It can't have been easy to stand in that spot, being Lyndon Johnson's wife, behind him while the cameras flashed and the protesters screamed. But somehow, Lady Bird Johnson made it work for her, and she achieved what she wanted through their marriage. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. 
Once again, thank you to Betty Boyd Caroli for joining me and for sharing the story of Lady Bird Johnson's unique front seat for some of the most tumultuous and monumental years in American history, from the Great Depression and World War II to Vietnam. You can visit BettyBoydCaroli.com to learn more about this and our other books on America's First Ladies. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash history author. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you happen to be listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Well, until next time, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.